part two on the ice sheet with our Pilgrim Dante who's got one of the sinners by the hair, by the short hairs at the back of the neck. Well, that's going to tie together to something that's ahead of us. But right now, (laughs) as him by the hairs at the back of the neck, and we stopped kind of in mid-conversation between the two of them. This episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, will continue on and be part two of what's already happened. I should say, hey, I'm Mark Scarborough. (laughs) So excited I forget who I am. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is that podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy, and I am really excited for this episode because I think it is really intriguing on a lot of levels, including the question of whether, in fact, we have reached the limits of what Inferno is capable of doing. We'll talk about that. But before we get to it, let's do the passage. We're in Canto 32 of Inferno. We're on the bottom ice sheet of hell, the ninth circle, Cocytus. We are in the second ring. Those who have been treacherous toward their country or toward their political party in some way. We're at lines 103 through 123 of my English translation, which you can find on my website, markscarbro.com. Without any more ado, that was surely enough, right? Let's have the passage itself. I'd already twisted his hair in my hand and pulled out more than one hank, even as he howled and willfully kept his eyes down when some guy cried out, What's up with Boca? Don't you make enough music by chattering your teeth without howling too? What devil's tickling you? That's it, I said. I don't care if you speak another word, you damn traitor. To your utter shame, I will carry back the true news of you. Go away, he replied, and tell whatever you want. Don't keep quiet if you do break out of here. Not the one who's got the ready tongue over there. He's blubbering about the French silver. I saw, you can say, the guy from Duera down where the sinners stay fresh on the ice. And if you ask, who else was down there? Right near you is the one from Beccaria, who had his armored throat piece sliced in two by the Florentines. I think Gianni di Soldanieri is a little farther on, with Ganelon and Tebadello, who opened Faenza while it slumbered. That's the passage. Those are the strange characters down here on the ice sheet. We want to talk about who this sinner is that the pilgrim has by the hair. We want to talk about who these other figures are who he mentions in the passage. We want to talk about one curiosity in the passage, which I find a detail that is almost too tempting not to point out. And then I want to talk about the structure and finally the success of Canto 32 of Inferno. That's a lot to cover in one episode of the podcast, so we better get working. First, let's talk about who this is. It starts, I'd already twisted his hair in my hand and pulled out more than one hank, even as he howled and willfully kept his eyes down. Now, this guy does not want to see 
who the pilgrim is. He wants to keep his eyes down. He's ashamed. We probably have to infer, given his own responses. But notice that we're not directly told that. We're making a kind of modern lit inference into the passage. It's true. He says, you know, don't remember me. That's not any way to flatter me. But at the same time, we're not directly told it. And in so much late medieval lit, we would be just directly told. We're directly told what the wife of Bath Steel is. We're directly told what the knight in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is all up to and about. Here we're kind of having to come around it and infer it. Interesting, more modernist technique, but then... Even though this guy doesn't want to be identified, he is identified by somebody else who cries out. And this is the guy who's eventually will find out blubbering about the French silver. Some guy cries out, what's up, Boca? The reference to Monteperti in the last episode of this podcast and now this reference to Boca allows us to identify this figure. This is Boca de Abati. His story really focuses on September 4th, 1260. That's the Battle of Monteperti. Boca de Abati was a Guelph, or as it is sometimes now pronounced, a Guelph. He was part of the Florentine Guelphs who were fighting against the Sienese Ghibellines, who were themselves backed by Manfred's troops, and Manfred too, from the Holy Roman Empire. So you have the Florentine Guelphs fighting the Sienese Ghibellines, who have the backing of the Holy Roman Empire and its troops. It's a terrible battle, a bloodshed battle. The Guelphs are destroyed in this battle. Many of the chroniclers talk endlessly about rivers of blood. There must have been so much blood shed that it actually flowed. Is that possible? I don't know. But it's certainly how it's discussed. Now, you should know, the reason I say is that possible, you should know that that's a common motif in apocalyptic stories. In fact, in the Bible, the questions of the apocalypse are about how eventually the forces will be hip deep in blood. The, uh, there'll be such horrible fighting in the Battle of Armageddon that it'll be the blood up to the horse's hips. So that idea of rivers of blood or big pools of blood, that is a kind of apocalyptic notion. So is it getting picked up because of that apocalyptic biblical reference or did it in fact indeed happen? It could have. Monteperti was a terrible battle. The Florentine Guelphs were put to rout. This figure, Boca de Abati, who was a Florentine Guelph, basically committed a foul act of treachery. This is the act. He cut the hand, the wrist, the arm. It's unclear. It's told differently in different chronicles. He cut something off the standard bearer, and therefore the standard bearer for a part of the Guelph army was not able to carry the standard. Why is this important? Well, it's important because battles were fought behind standard bearers. You essentially, as the military leader, would use your standard bearers with their huge flags, their standards, to go in front of the troops to show them where to go to make the military formations that you want to make. By cutting the hand, wrist, arm, something off the standard bearer so that the standard bearer could not carry the standard, the Guelphs then didn't know what to do. Chaos ensued and they were slaughtered. Now, let me tell you that in Dante's day, everybody blamed Boca for doing this. The question is, did Boca actually cause the Guelph defeat? 
No. In fact, the Florentine Guelphs were outgunned, the Holy Roman Empire, after all, behind the Sienese Ghibellines. And most likely, the Florentines were fighting with inferior weapons. Better weaponry had been brought down and reinforced to the Sienese by those Holy Roman Empire soldiers. So, Probably Boca's one move of treachery, despicable as it is, isn't enough to have turned the entire battle against Florence. But you know, as well as I do, that history gets simplified and that causality all channels down to linearity. And ultimately, even in Dante's day, and certainly it seems like here, Dante himself is blaming Boca for the defeat of the Guelphs at the Battle of Monteperti. By the way, we've already mentioned this Battle of Monteperti. It comes up with Farinata. And when it comes up with Farinata, there is that question of staining the river red with blood. It's look back, it's at Canto 10 lines. What is that? About lines 85 to 87, Canto 10 along in there. And there's this whole bit about Farinata, you know, being accused of making the rivers run with blood because Farinata was at this battle too. And Farinata seems to take some ownership for his guilt. Farinata, if you remember, is the one who says, let's not go ahead and burn Florence to the ground and salt the ground so that nothing. Nothing else can ever be there. Farinata spares Florence its final destruction after the Battle of Monteperti. We covered that all back in Canto 10, but you should know that we saw this battle referenced there, and it is a giant turning point in central Italian history of the late medieval period. Who we have here is a huge traitor. He may be more than that. And there's a couple of interesting bits about his characterization here that I'd like to point out to you. He says, you know, go away and <laughs> and tell whatever you want, buddy. I don't care. Do whatever you got to do and tell whatever you got to do. But while you're at it, you know, don't keep quiet if you do break out of here about the one who's got the ready tongue over there. This is the guy blubbering about the French silver, who we'll talk about in a minute. But it's right there that there's something interesting about Boca's character. That word break out, if you do break out of here, if you do escape from here, if you do get away from here, it's that verb. It's a corrupted subjunctive. It's most likely a colloquial form of the subjunctive there. Just to make sure that we're all on the same page, the subjunctive in particularly a European language expresses a condition alternate to reality or extreme doubt. You know, uh, what would we say in English? If I were president, I would do blah, 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 blah. That If I were that subjunctive construction. It's used much more frequent in medieval Florentine. And this is a kind of colloquial subjunctive verb, which means that Boca is doubting that the pilgrim will ever get out of hell. That if you do break out of here, is cast in this subjunctive. And so it is cast in a form to say that Boca is essentially saying, you're never making it out of here. Look, buddy, don't fool yourself. Nobody gets out of this ice sheet. It's a bit of a sneer, and it adds to his characterization in the passage. And there is a second bit that you can see, and that is he's a snitch. He tells all the names of other people down here. He acts very much like the last guy, like Camicione de Pazzi, who we saw in Caina. These guys seem so quick to point out other sinners. Isn't that interesting that when we get to the traitors, they're constantly pointing others out? You know, like, oh, I may be bad, but look who else is here. 
<laughs> Look at the company I keep down here. It's not a ringing endorsement, but both of them in Canto 32 appear to be snitches, and certainly that's the way it works for Boca. Notice, too, that Boca invents dialogue for the pilgrim. I find this so intriguing. He basically says, you know, if you go back up and somebody says this, say this. And if somebody says this, say this. I love this writing of the script. This traitor has got to be in control. Even <laughs> I find that just such a fascinating note of his character. We see him being very sneering about the pilgrim's chances of escaping. We see him being a snitch. And then we just see this guy. He just can't let go of control. I mean, you know, hey, let me write a script for you. I just hate that when that happens. <laughs> In my marriage, if you wanted to how to really be mm, in the middle of a fight in my marriage, write a script for me. When my husband says to me, well, just tell them blah, 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 <laughs> I go off the rails. I'm like, don't tell me what to say. Well, maybe I'm reacting to that here because of my personal issues, but I do think it's part of Boca's characterization. He is just going to keep in control no matter what. Let's name the people he snitches on. He first talks about the guy blubbering about the French silver. The guy he's talking about is Buosa da Duera. He's a Ghibelline leader of Cremona. There's very little here that in the historical record that is completely sure, but here's what I can tell you. When Charles of Anjou was making his way down to Sicily in 1265, Manfred of the Holy Roman Empire. Manfred ordered that Charles be stopped by Cremonese forces. But, and this is what I can say for certain, but Charles made it all the way to Parma and even beyond without many problems. When Manfred clearly said, you know, don't let him through, and yet his troops went on down south on the Italian peninsula in 1265, why did that exactly occur? Well, the early commentators all claim that this figure, Buosa da Duera, accepted some sort of bribe. And in fact, most of them claim that he accepted a bribe from some French nobleman or from some French nobleman's wife. In fact, one of them even implicates Guy de Montfort's wife as giving a bribe to this Buosa, and so thus the French silver, and the bribe was basically to call off the Cremonese forces, and thus Charles of Anjou keeps on marching south. If that's the case, then in fact, this guy, Buosa, has been a traitor to his own people by allowing those, you know in Dante terms, wily French to continue their march south toward Sicily. That's the first person mentioned, the French silver person. And then, you know, Boca just can't help himself. And so he says, if you ask who else is down here, well, right near you is the one from Beccaria, who had his armored throat piece. The word here in the Florentine is for that piece of armor you wear around your throat. It was kind of an awkward translation on my part. But it's not just that he had his throat slit. It's that that whole throat armored piece 
was slit. Who we're talking about here is most likely Tesoro de Beccaria. He was an abbot of Val Ombrosa. He was a Ghibelline. And essentially what he did is he helped the Ghibellines re-enter Florence in 1258. Basically, he aided the Ghibellines to retake what was Guelph territory, which set up the huge battle, which led us out to Monteperti, which led us out to the Sienese battle that eventually vanquished the Florentine Guelphs, at least for a while, until those Ghibellines were then cast out, and then the Guelphs themselves divided into the whites and the blacks. What what a mess this place is. This is what factionalism will do. What a mess. Again, there could be a little fudging here. The historical record is a little unclear in places, but it's probably pretty close to where we should be. And then he names somebody straight out, Gianni de Soldanieri. This is a Ghibelline who joined the uprising against the Ghibellines after the defeat and death of Manfred in 1266. So Manfred's forces are the Battle of Monteperti in 1260. Manfred continues his march on down. Manfred takes possession of part of central Italy. He tries to stop the French, led by Charles of Anjou. He's unsuccessful at that. And then Manfred himself dies in 1266. And this Ghibelline, this Gianni, is somebody basically who joined an uprising against the Ghibelline leadership once Manfred was out of the picture. So again, a traitor to party. And then we have two more figures named in the passage. A little farther on, Boca says, there's Ganelon. Ganelon, we've already seen him. That's the traitor who betrayed Charlemagne and who Roland blew his horn because of the attacking Saracen Islamic forces. That's that guy. Interesting, this passage is coming to the end of 32, and we're wrapping back to that image of Roland blowing his horn. Remember way back with the giants, we had that image. So it seems as if Dante the poet is making a call here that helps us wrap 31 and 32 into a package together from the giants, the betrayal of Charlemagne, and then the betrayer of Charlemagne, Ganelon, is named here. But he's not the last figure named. Then comes this Tebaldello. This is Tebaldello Zambrossi. This is, again, a Ghibelline. He betrayed other Ghibellines who had escaped Bologna for the town of Faenza, and they were hiding out in Faenza. And, well, this lovely fellow in 1280 essentially opened the town gates and let those Ghibellines who were trying to run from Bologna be slaughtered. He's a traitor to his own cause. Notice how many Ghibellines are here. There are so many mentioned. Yes, Boca is a Guelph. Dante, remember, is part of a Guelph sub-party. But then we have a whole set of Ghibellines. It's almost as if we're on all sides of the conflict here. In other words, I think the poet is trying to tell us that being disloyal isn't a part of being on my side. It's a part of being disloyal to what 
whichever side you've chosen. And it's just so fascinating that there are so many Ghibellines here. I realize that that was an overview of these figures, and it was the same thing with Camicione da Pazzi when he named all those figures, and it was just so many names and so much historical data going on. I'm going to talk about that at the end of this podcast about whether I think Canto 32 is a success. It's hard because, again, our historical distance has put so much space between us and what probably in Dante's day are much commoner names, figures who we would know. But now let's talk about this one detail that I just find so tempting I can't leave it alone. When Buosa da Duera calls out and says, what's up, Boca? <laughs> Why are you screaming? <laughs> You're getting your hair pulled out. He says, don't you make enough music by chattering your teeth without howling too? What devil is tickling you? What devil? It's the pilgrim. And at that moment in the passage, in a wonderfully bitter, biting, ironic twist, our pilgrim is referred to as a devil. There's so many ways to take this. I don't even know where to go with it. There's so many ways to take it. Is Dante indeed a devil to the damned? I mean, is Dante part of the torment of the damned? Having the pilgrim walk across hell is part of their torment because they're forced into telling their stories. They're forced into being recognized. They're forced into trying to justify themselves. Is Dante part of, well, to put it bluntly, the torture system of hell? Well, fascinating question, right? Or is this some kind of strange, ironic inversion? Is this casting aspersion on Dante's motives for wanting to pull out Boca's hair? Is the poet standing behind and saying, oh, when I was there, I might as well have been a demon. I was treating this guy so badly. I might as well have been part of the satanic forces. Don't think that's right, but I think you could read the line that way, and I think you could probably talk to me enough to convince me of that. It's just so fascinating that the pilgrim here is identified as one of the prime tormentors of hell. What devil's tickling you? Ah, that would be Dante, our pilgrim, who we're walking with across the ice sheet of the final ring of hell. Since I've brought Camicione da Pazzi up before in Caina, and since we see references here to Boca being a snitch in the same way that Camicione is back there in Caina, it brings us to this question of the structure of Canto 32, and it is really tightly structured. I mean, we enter the ice sheet, we hear a voice say, don't step on the heads, we then figure that is probably Camicione. As I told you, some commentators think that might be Virgil. Some think it might be others. Don't kick the heads. Then we come on down to the next rung, and Dante the Pilgrim indeed does kick ahead of Boca in the last episode of this podcast and in the last passage. And then both of them rat out others around them. You notice how tight this is structured, how this is structured in such a way that Caina is reflected in Antonora and Antonora is reflected back in Caina. They're very much parallel. Some might say too parallel. It's 
too easy to make a case that, in fact, one and the other account, you know, for mirrors of each other. And Dante has really simplified things in this canto by making them so mirrored episodes of each other. That could be. But there is a larger question here, and that is about, finally, the success of Canto 32. This is a large question and one that we can't fully answer about whether Canto 32 works. Is it too structured? Is it too mirrored? Are these figures too cursory? Are we given just too many lists of names? It's hard because we are a long way from the emotional resonances here. And maybe here in the 32nd Canto of Inferno, we feel the 700 years that lie between us and Dante. And that could actually be what's going on here. These figures might be much more resonant and much more redolent to Dante's audience when he's writing than they are to us. And so to name them off in a cursory matter, oh, well, then they're so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, it's not exactly totally satisfying. But we have seen this before. We saw this with the ones standing in the river of blood. There's so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, all standing in the river of blood without a great deal of interaction between the pilgrim and those. But we talked about that as kind of a zoo of the damned and viewing the zoo of the damned. That's different from here because the pilgrim is interacting with these figures. The pilgrim is having some kind of conversation with Camicione and then some kind of violent conversation and outright violence with Boca. So it's a little different that the names are thrown out here. There's so much drama in the scene that the zoo-like quality of pointing out the damned, like you're walking down a zoo and going, oh, there are the tigers, oh, there are the lions, oh, there are the elephants. Right? The zoo-like quality is mitigated by the drama in the scene. I mean, our pilgrim here is fi- p- positioning himself as a devil. He's yanking out the hair of somebody. He's hardly being nice, to say the least. So the emotional force of the scene is there, but the emotional force of the historicity of the scene may be a little lacking, and it may be a matter of distance, but also let me just posit this answer. Maybe we're also approaching the limits of the Florence question. Maybe in the end, the question of the strife of Florence is finding its end game here. We will have passages about the future of Florence and the strife in Florence in Purgatorio and Paradiso, but they will never be as pressing as they are in Inferno. Maybe we are reaching the limits of the political and historical struggle for the narrative. You could see that in two different ways. One, we're reaching the limits because the pilgrim is finding that in the end, Florence's struggles don't matter in the giant divine plan. You'd have to be looking ahead to Purgatorio and Paradiso so to see that, but you would say that part of the pilgrim's learning process is that the struggles of Florence, the terrestrial strife that he endures, is not necessarily, what I want to say, monumental in the cosmic scheme of the divine plan. 
Maybe. You could also say that perhaps the poet is exhausting the material and that the, the question of the civil strife in Florence is now coming toward its end because basically we've said all we can say. And so now we throw out all kinds of ghibellines and all kinds of gelfs and all kinds of traitors against family and, you know, political traitors and et cetera. And yeah, we're throwing them out. But we're kind of reaching the limits of the possible and what is left to say. Now, I'm saying this to you, what is left to say, knowing what's ahead of us, the last great center of hell. So I'm saying this to you to set this up because there is something yet left to say. And that is the physical toll of evil itself, not the mental toll or the political toll or the civil toll of evil, but the physical toll of evil itself. We're approaching that. We're going to get to it in the next and then on further into the podcast, the next few episodes. It is a gruesome and grim moment, but maybe there is a way we are reaching the limits of the civil, civic, mental, intellectual, historical, cultural Florentine strife. And here we're having kind of its last gasps as various figures from the strife in central Italy are thrown at us. And we kind of just see them almost in passing while the drama of the pilgrim is heightened around us. That can either cause you to say, no, it doesn't work. The drama with the pilgrim is too high for this kind of offhanded naming of various traitors, or it can cause you to say, yes, Dante is realizing that the real drama of the journey lies with the pilgrim, not with the pilgrim's relationship to Florence. So I promised you that at the end of this episode, I would read the entire Antonora section, and I'm going to do that for you now in my translation. Again, you can find this on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can make notes. You can do what you like with it. It's lines 70 through 123 of Canto 32. This is the entire second subring of the ninth circle of hell. No funny voices, just the story. After that, I saw a thousand faces turned purple by the cold. Thus I shiver at frozen fords, and I always will. As we walked on toward the center where all the weight bears in, and I was quaking with the eternal cold, whether what happened was willed or fated or destined, I don't know. In any event, passing on among the heads, I happened to kick one of them hard right in the face. Wailing, he called out to me, Why'd you stomp on me? Unless you came down here to execute some vendetta about Monteperti, why even fool with me? And I, my master, please wait a bit for now, because I want to clear up a doubt about this guy. Then we can hurry along as much as you want. My guide stopped, and I said to the guy, who still cursed at me like an animal, Who are you to be calling out others like this? Well, who are you to be going through Antonora? He replied, bashing others in the cheeks. If I were alive, this would be too much to bear. Well, I am indeed alive. And if you give a hoot about fame, I replied, I can put your name in my notes. And he to me, I'm greedy for just the opposite. Get out of here. Quit bugging me. You have no clue how to flatter someone in this swamp. I grabbed him by the hair at the nape of his neck and said, Either you tell me your name or you're not going to have a hair left on your head. 
At which he to me, you can scalp me, and I still won't tell you who I am, nor raise my head up to let you see me, even if you jump on my head a thousand times. I'd already twisted his hair in my hand and pulled out more than one hank, even as he howled and willfully kept his eyes down, when some guy cried out, What's up, Boca? Don't you make enough music by chattering your teeth without howling too? What devil's tickling you? That's it. I said, I don't care if you speak another word, you damned traitor. To your utter shame, I will carry back the true news about you. Go away, he replied, and tell whatever you want. But don't keep quiet if you do break out of here about the one who's got the ready tongue over there. He's blubbering about the French silver. I saw, you can say, the guy from Duera down where the sinners stay fresh on the ice. And if you're asked who else was down there... Right near you is the one from Beccaria who had his armored throat piece sliced in two by the Florentines. I think Gianni de Soldanieri is a little farther on with Ganelon and Te Baldello who opened Faenza while it slumbered. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope that I made sense out of that complicated bit in Antonora over those two episodes. It's really crazy. It has such a wild resonance back to the Kaina episodes. They're mirroring each other. They're characterizations that are unique to each. And yet at the same time, they're in parallel. It's really either high art or clumsy art. And you really kind of want to think about that perhaps a little bit more about we're not. We're passing on to the most horrific scene in all of Inferno. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, come back, because we've got the last great center of hell ahead of us, and surely the most troubling scene in all of Inferno. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.